0: Hi there. I'm Allison B. Young and welcome to the first episode of Gathered, Storied Botanicals, a podcast exploring the world of flowers, the floral design industry, as well as a kind of reflection or even reconciliation of my own personal experiences as a florist. I'm beginning today with a type of flower that is so diverse and so widespread that I think it's safe to say most everyone has seen one kind of this bloom or another. The orchid family is one of two of the largest families of flowering plants. Within the scientific community there is debate whether the Asteraceae family, which includes the daisy, is larger than the orchid family, but within each classification there is seemingly infinite variations that set these individual species apart. There are twice as many types of orchids as there are birds in the world, and about four times more than there are mammals. When many tropical species were being introduced and brought to Western cultures during the 19th century, from places like Malaysia, China, or Taiwan, horticulturists began producing countless hybrids. So part of that large number is due to mankind's impact. I always assumed orchids were rainforest flowers, thriving in hot, steamy environments, but that's only partly true. There is a species of lady slipper that grows in the American Northeast. Also known as the crowning glory of the northern bogs, or moccasin flower, the small bright bloom has been used for medicinal purposes, particularly within Native American tribes. There are specific types of cymbidium orchids that are integral to the tea culture of Japan. and Even today, many spice cabinets in American households are not complete without the crucial flavoring of vanilla, which most frequently comes from the flat-leaved vanilla plant, an orchid found in Mexico. Some varieties of orchids grow from giant tree limbs, while others are called terrestrial, meaning that they grow from the ground. And on a more simplistic level, each orchid looks so different from the next. Take, for example, the Dracula orchid. For anyone interested in flowers, even remotely, or perhaps interested in classical horror monsters, I encourage you to look up any images of this particular flower. Native to Central America, the Dracula orchid seems to be looking at you, Perhaps in the same way its namesake might gaze upon a new sleeping victim. A small devilish face appears from the three pointed petals that are often striped in an inky red-purple shade. The petals look bat-like, and it seems to want to take flight. Then there is the Phalaenopsis orchid, probably one of the most popular and commonly seen orchids in the U.S. It also goes by the name of moth orchid for its flat, opened wing shape. The blooms come in many different colors, from white, pale green to fuchsia and beyond. In the floral industry, a Phalaenopsis orchid can act or be marketed as a longer lasting floral arrangement that gives a minimal or modern look, fitting certain homes or lobbies of office buildings. Sometimes they can even stand in lieu of a more traditional wedding arrangement. In a glazed ceramic pot with moss and branches of curly willow or euonymus, the long arching stem shoots out from the low-lying leaves and the blooms open like a shooting star in slow motion. This dreamy flight of a vibrant night flyer. You've likely seen them for sale in grocery stores or the garden centers of big box hardware stores like Lowe's or Home Depot. And there are roughly 60 species of Phalaenopsis orchids alone. This incredible variety and diversity of flowers just within one type never ceases to astound me. I feel like I could devote a lifetime to learning about one type of flower and still never learn it all. I am telling you all this not as a historical or horticultural lesson, but more to point out my fascination with a flower that seems alien, so exotic and yet so commonplace at the same time. I catch myself when rushing down aisles and search for the innocuous items of life, be them batteries or paper towels or light bulbs, and have to remind myself how strange it really is that a collection of these rainforest blooms are sitting on shelves amongst the garden hoses, patio furniture, and grill cleaning equipment. Somehow it adds a fresh and new depth to the phrase made in China. The strange, the seemingly foreign or extraordinary, sitting plainly among the ordinary, yet still going widely unnoticed hidden in plain sight, it seems. That's how the world of flowers, the world of floral design in particular, has been for me. It's a job that seems on the periphery of many people's minds, but has a significant role in many milestone and memorable points in one's life. Births, weddings, anniversaries, funerals, the never-ending intricacies of nature pulled from their origin and arranged for something to celebrate or commemorate to please or comfort us to mesmerize or hypnotize us if we choose to see them that is This was the case for my first experience working in the floral industry. I had recently graduated college in Savannah, Georgia, and had moved to a suburb of its rival port city, Charleston, South Carolina. Both cities possess a certain appeal or charm within their pineapple-adorned hospitality, as well as the southern gothic allure of dripping Spanish moss, ghost stories running rampant up and down the cobblestone streets. With the hope of finding work, I moved to a place where I didn't know anyone, was far from my family. Even a relationship with a college boyfriend at the time was falling apart, and the meager savings I had accumulated from the past summer were gone before I had even finished unpacking my things. I was floundering. I was desperate for work. I was eager for any job I could do, but nothing panned out. Not at a perfume counter in the Belk department store, or doing door-to-door sales for windshield repairs, or driving to Folly Beach nearly an hour away to work at a tourist beach shop, selling overpriced keychains, beach towels, and yes, even summer-themed snow globes. The thing was, I was terrible at selling anything, including myself. Job interviews fell flat, and the dread of relying primarily on a commission filled me with a crippling anxiety. After a lousy restaurant job that barely paid the bills, I was applying to any job I found on Craigslist that didn't involve a potential invitation to being murdered in someone's basement. One of these impulsive emails was for a job titled, Floral Designer Assistant. Assistant? That seemed like a reasonable thing to be, right? After all, it had been months, and I quickly realized how futile all my hard work in the classroom seemed to have been. Out in the real world, so to speak, no one seemed to care that I had gotten my assignments done on time, that I listened to my professors, that I carefully crafted resumes and cover letters for jobs that seemed to fit my education. It didn't seem to matter that I had done everything I was told to do. That safe bubble of academia had burst, and it was humbling. So hell, I'll be a dishwasher, I thought. I'll be a maid somewhere. I know I can mop floors. I know how to windex a pane of glass without leaving smudge marks. In that fog of discouragement, it was hard to know what my skills were, what my value in this world might be. I think I was among many people of my generation or beyond feeling that as we entered the workforce during the recession. So even the role of assistant to anyone calling themselves a designer seemed out of reach in a way, but I applied, and much to my surprise I got a response, and even more surprising, I was offered the job, and I'd be making the most money I'd ever made at that point in my life, $12 an hour, I jumped on it, so when my first day came, I was a nervous wreck, I needed this job, for the money, but for many other things as well, I couldn't screw this up, I just couldn't. Upon arriving, my boss, a woman named Susan, had me load a contractor's van with about a half-dozen phalaenopsis orchids, both in white and a deep magenta color. We also loaded in extra branches, potting soil, green moss, and a toolbox. Then she handed me the keys and made me maneuver the large, cumbersome van onto the highway. We drove about an hour and a half outside Charleston, heading south on Highway 17, A straight shot, connecting Charleston to Savannah. Behind the wheel, I felt too small for this mammoth vehicle. I felt awkward. Susan absent-mindedly, gave me directions as she checked her emails on her phone. I was still getting used to the huge van and felt I might be a distraction. So I went the whole drive without asking where we were going or who we were delivering the orchids to. The vast marshlands, the ancient looking live oak trees, and the long tree lined driveways toward dilapidated old plantations had become familiar after four years of living in the low country. But it never felt like home. I distinctly remember driving down that highway, sharing this uncomfortable silence with this new boss, who may or may not be having doubts about hiring me for this job I wasn't sure I could even do. And I felt, for the first time, homesick. I wanted to be home near my family and the Appalachian Mountains where I grew up. There's safety in mountains, not like the unending flat marshlands. What appears as golden fields of tall grasses can actually suck you into pluff mud. You sink like quicksand. It's a flat landscape that can fill you with a certain existential dread. I remember peering in the rearview mirror and seeing the orchids bobbing their moth-shaped heads. I had seen these flowers before, but in the jitters of my first day on the job, or this newfound longing to be somewhere familiar, they looked different to me. Neither of us were native to this land. Neither of the orchids in the back of the van nor I could say we belonged here, or that we could thrive here. Wherever we were taking these flowers, I couldn't be certain how they'd live. How long would it take before the blooms wilted and fell away? Who would take care of them once we finished our job? What was going to happen to us? But here we were somehow, speeding down this highway together. I felt in that moment an odd connection with these orchid plants. Two strangers meeting out of happenstance, it seemed. And there's comfort in that, right? confirmation you're not alone in this the last leg of the drive we pulled off the highway onto a winding country road through a swamp susan lost signal on her phone and became chatty giving me the account of her first delivery to this small southern town called yemesee in which an alligator was stretched across the road to sun itself and would not move for the flower van no matter how much she revved the engine or honked the horn what did you do i had asked Susan shrugged nonchalantly, then explained that it wasn't until another vehicle, a large pickup, coming from the other direction was enough to scare the gator back into the swamp. I wasn't sure what to make of this. All I knew was that there weren't any alligators back home in Virginia. And so, after what felt like hours wandering these back roads, the dense forest gave way to what must have been an open field enclosed by a tall, rust-colored wall. Susan directed me to turn into the lane where a dark wooden gate sat before us. A small modest sign read Ald Brass," as the only indication of where we were. She called through the intercom and we waited. Without any voice calling back on the other end, a loud buzz issued from the intercom and the gates then slowly swung open to let us in. I had mentioned at the start of this that this podcast would be an exploration of sorts. I've worked with flowers for the past five years and feel I've only just scratched the surface. That I'm just now arriving at the gates of what all these strange creatures have to offer. So please, I hope you'll join me next time on Gathered, Storied Botanicals, and travel over that threshold with me. Thanks for listening.